Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I am here at NYU Future Labs, meeting with some of the AI Nexus Lab companies. And the first company into the interrogation room is Mount Cleverest. And I'm here with the CEO, James Villarubia, and the COO, Bernie Pratt. Welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we get started with an introduction to the two of you, your backgrounds, as well as the company and what the company is up to? Sure. So my background is really as an engineering statistician. I got a engineering degree and from UVA and then a master's in public policy, mostly focused on tech policy. And what I found was the coolest, most interesting problems out there to solve weren't just engineering ones, they were political ones. They were big picture policy stuff. So I jumped into the Pentagon as a statistician and then briefly went to the White House and then finally the DOJ. And then I got kind of tired of DC and, and got the startup bug and came up to here to New York and uh, helped run a cybersecurity company for a couple of years. Until eventually this idea that we had about Mount Cleverest finally kind of piqued the right person's interest. And they said, go do that. And, and we said, great, we've been, we've been trying to get it, get it going for a long time. So we're really nice. excited. Thanks, James. And Bernie, how about you? Sure. So I moved up to New York right after college. And we did some work in a startup in finance where we were pulling data out of press releases to send to programmatic traders. And this allowed us or me to get into machine learning and natural language processing early on in my career, not as an engineer, but as a, a manager of engineers doing product work primarily. From there, I bounced around into a few different places, again, in product positions, but very, very data heavy, API heavy. And James and I, we've actually been friends for about 25 years. We met in kindergarten. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, the first time I've heard that photo evidence too. <laughs> used to be part of our pitch. <laughs> nice. So we've been friends for a very long time and uh, had always wanted to work together after doing so. Uh, we went to high school together as well and did some good work in a few, a number of different areas. But this was uh, the chance in for high us. school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we were in uh, ROTC together. We were, James was uh, doing the band and the, the newspaper and I was a member of that. And we were just all over the place. We were had ones in band camp. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie never went, but I, I, don't, I don't. We don't talk about that. I know. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so this is an opportunity for us to work together. Yeah, finally. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so Mount Cleverest, I love the name. It's actually rather clever. <laughs> yeah, good. You never get that. What does the company do? So we actually started the company kind of based off an idea we had had seven some seven years ago. My parents are both teachers. I actually still teach at UVA part-time cybersecurity. And what we realized is that my, growing up, I'd see my parents deal with kind of bad textbooks, textbooks that kind of handed down to them from the administration that they had to kind of bend to meet the needs of the classroom. And we were iterating through ideas. And that was the one that I said, no, like if we could figure out a way to solve this, like this would be really valuable because my parents just always were complaining about it. So we didn't really quite know the approach yet, and we didn't have necessarily the NLP and machine learning skills to really tackle it yet. But as the industry has grown and kind of our skills have grown, we said, okay, this is something we can apply NLP, machine learning, neural nets, and solve this kind of selection problem. So what Mount Cleverest does is we can take any content on the web, a URL, piece of text, and then generate quiz questions on the fly on that text in a matter wow. of seconds. And then the kind of the real advantage, though, is not just creating the questions, but after that, we track every interaction with that quiz, what students get wrong, what they get right. 
how long they take with each question, what questions and answers teachers like and don't like, what they want to use. Feed that into a neural net that then improves the system, improves the quiz for the next person. So it's actually really at the end of the day, it ends up being one big online textbook that actually improves itself the more you use it. Interesting. Interesting. And so I'm familiar with the, there's a ton of research happening around question answering, which is, you know, you have a body of text, you kind of start with some questions and then you use AI machine learning to try to answer those questions. You've kind of inverted that and you're using AI to generate the questions as well as the answers and track the kind of track and adjust over time. Is that as established a research area, the question asking piece? Not so much. <laughs> we, I mean, a few years ago, there were very few papers. At least now there, are some, some inter- there is some interesting work being done, but again, nothing substantial because a lot of it has been driven by kind of the, the question answering Alexa, kind of Siri approach to machine learning. What the question that has or the, what has been tackled in machine learning is this idea of taking a mass amount of text and figuring out a good question to come around it, kind of the, the Watson model, okay, Jeopardy. Being able to parse mass amounts of text and generate one question, maybe a very well-formed question, but it's one question. Our problem, and this, really kind of the heart of our, our tech, is that we take a very limited amount of text and be able to generate you know, 100, 120 questions off of one piece of text, each asking about something different. And then the kind of extra level of difficulty is then, great, you've got a question, you've got an answer that you've drawn out. How do I generate good wrong answers? How do I find a question or an or sorry, an answer that is a good distractor from the correct answer? So I put a multiple choice question in front of a kid. If it's so close to the right answer that it's confusing, that's bad. If it's so far away that they would never guess it anyway, that's also bad. So you got to find the kind of that that Goldilocks middle ground on kind of good distractors, and that was really the probably the the heart of the NLP problem. I'm imagining like a dial where you can kind of tune the question for difficulty or I guess a big part of the neural net piece that you described is about kind of normalizing the question answer set so that you your kind of average ends up where you want it to be. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah. So we can actually look at kind of the, the readability of the text or kind of industry standard scoring mechanism to take a, a chunk of text and figure out what grade levels this would be appropriate for. So the origin text, we can actually kind of guess at what good, what these questions are going to come out kind of referring to in terms of like, is this a fifth grade text or is this a seventh grade text? But we're actually working on some tech to be able to convert something that is maybe written at a 12th grade level down to a ninth grade level and then kind of use questions that are more appropriate for that. That's kind of in a, in a coming release. But yeah, it's being able to correctly pick questions that are appropriate for a grade level and answers that are appropriate for a grade level is a whole layer of complexity that a lot of other you know, tech solutions don't really think about, but is, is unique to the education space. Okay. I think of educators as, as folks that kind of want to have a lot of control over their source materials. Like, How does this approach land for them relative to what they're used to? So we're, we're kind of taking this problem in, in two different ways. The first is the initial product allows a teacher to bring in whatever content they would like. So if they found a news article that is exciting or, and relates to their class, or if they have a, a page that they've been using and sending students to for years, instead of having that all based on paper in terms of the grading, we're actually pulling that in and, and, and tracking that information. On the other side, there's a search component that you've kind of brought into it. And we're working towards that. That is the broader vision of having a collection, a universe of, of 
content and then being able to rank and sort that. So there's the create problem and then there's the, the ranking and sorting. So we've kind of split those intentionally. The control issue, it's, it's something we want to get into. We know that's a political battle in the lightest of terms because it's almost, you know, not true politics, but yes, that is something that we see often. And so we're coming up with ways to either encourage behavior in a certain way to kind of let go of that, including automatic randomization of questions or adding in questions from a different source that are applicable to the source that was provided. So we're actually swapping in new information and using that as part of the, the quiz for students. So it's not a standardization, but it's instead a way for us to help determine the quality of content as well as the students understand it. And so there's, there's kind of a couple of different problems there. There's also a distinction in education between formative assessment and summative assessment. And this idea that teachers get really kind of have close hold on exams because they want to be able to kind of assign really clear grades and hold those students accountable and make sure they can kind of deal with parents that disagree with those grades. They have to have kind of a clear, clear chain. But what has been kind of lost is this idea of this formative assessment that I want to have homework that a kid can try over and over again until they get it right. Because I'm actually interested in them learning it, not just grading on their first guess. So what Mount Cleverson is really focuses on is kind of trying to get the teacher to, you know, to not think about the quiz that we are providing as summative, as that you're going to get grades and this is going to count to the report card, but more of a get good questions in front of a kid to make sure that they understand the content and they can take that quiz as many times as possible until they really grasp it or master it. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the pipeline that you use to deliver this from a machine learning perspective? Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's funny because we, we get a lot of we get a lot of questions about like oh well can't like can't can't this just be done by a machine learning model off the shelf? And yes and no in the sense that in the sense that we are using some kind of you know some basic you know basic kind of industry tried and true NLP models and neural nets. What are some um, of those? I mean, we, we're leveraging a lot of NER for name density recognition, using some kind of interesting, interesting math around word vectors, what I call like the donut model, saying, okay, I want to find similar words, but then like go up and then remove the words that are really similar to find those kind of, again, the Goldilocks distractors. So those, those are kind of the approaches that we're doing in the neural nets. We're trying lots of different things because that part of the product is, is still kind of not nascent, but it, we're, we're getting there. So we're still kind of refining that. But the pipeline itself, actually, what's interesting about Mount Cleverest is that it's not just one huge, big monolithic model, is that we have to build you know, an NLP that can generate you know, dozens of types of questions. So each one has its own kind of pipeline, feeds that into a unified data structure. But then we have to normalize questions against questions, answers against answers, formats against formats. So even within the ranking system, within one lesson, within one subject, we might have a whole series of models. Each, again, not necessarily huge, robust, crazy, big models, but each doing a you know, kind of a unique, specific thing. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean by normalizing questions against questions? And are we talking about in terms of their difficulty and things like that? Or Right. So in terms of their difficulty, so imagine you've, you're a teacher and you've created a lesson and you want to, like you, we've generated, let's say, 100 quiz questions. Now, some of those are, are not going to be great because the NLP isn't you know, perfect. No, you know, we don't know many products that are perfect. So we want that kind of human in the loop feedback. So we are capturing kind of what, you know, the upvotes and downvotes, similar to kind of Reddit, of what teachers like and don't like, but at the question and at the answer level. So we get that, just that base level, kind of like how many people have upvoted, how many people have liked or disliked this particular piece. But then we've got this kind of student performance data on the back end. So, okay, well, when I showed this question in this format, in this context, like this is how well a student did, given how long they took. So 
normalizing that data means that I have to take every interaction with every question or format or answer and then trying to figure out, okay, even though this question has been shown to you know, 10 different students in 10 different ways, how do I judge its effectiveness? Is this a good measure of learning on this particular topic? So like that's, that's the normalization that we're talking about. And is that like some big batch job that runs every X day or week or something? Or is it something that you just kind of trigger it's, periodically? Or? So we, we've actually made kind of a goal of the product to not do things in batch, which, <laughs> which was, it was a bold goal. It may slowed us down a little bit. But we actually wanted, we set the goal from the user experience level that we wanted the quiz to improve on a kind of like per interaction basis. So like every time a kid answers a question, exactly. it rejiggers the entire... Yes. Re, does that mean... So by the time the second student sees the quiz, it's actually improved and changed and learned from the results of the first student. And is that learning... Does that mean that you are like retraining models and that whole pipeline? Or does it mean that are there some set of heuristics that you're using to kind of massage weights or things like that without having to retrain all your models? A bit of both. So we don't retrain the model every run through, though we do have some kind of tail trained models kind of worked in. But most of it is capturing kind of the heuristics of the performance with those questions in those formats and capturing that and then feeding that back in as additional information into the model as we then kind of randomize and select what we want to do and what we want to show to the second student. So it's the heuristics of the first student fed back into the same model, tail trained a couple pieces, and then kind of what you get, or like, oh, try this version of this content or this version of this question with these answers in this format instead okay. of the old one, because that old version, eh, it wasn't, wasn't a great test, but this one might be. So it's a little bit of randomization, a little bit of kind of design of experiments, constantly trying to say, okay, how, you know, reduce how many experiments or variations do we need to run before we figure out what the best stuff is. Okay. And in terms of identifying the target content in the first place, is that are the educators, you know, feeding URLs into the system to direct you or are you doing some ML driven crawling or something like that to figure out the interesting content out there? At the moment, we're relying on the what we consider the expert network of teachers. So we want the educators to be the one providing content that they have used in the past. And then we'll be doing that ranking in order to help them either bubble up what is better or take advantage of the stuff that they, they're tried and true sources. So a lot of the, the open educational resources movement from the Obama administration has been very helpful in that. And a lot of, a lot of institutions, a lot of, as well as a lot of individuals, are now providing content openly available under a Creative Commons license or the MIT license, whatever it might be, is now available to us and not behind a paywall, not under the umbrella of one of the large publishers or anything like that. So it's taking advantage of that that recent trend. Okay. Interesting. What what have been kind of the biggest challenges in pulling this all together? Well, I think that the biggest challenge was designing that data structure. So again, we have all of these different models all looking at essentially the same data and how you store that and how you store that in a way that can be kind of lightweight, pulled in the moment, you know, in between quiz questions. That was something that I think both of us had to kind of kind of take a step back and say, okay, how do we store this data at like at scale, but as a, as kind of you know as we're small, but also at scale, kind of building towards this this bigger architecture, being able to track what I like to call kind of the context mapping. That it was this version of the question with these answers shown, like maybe there are ten wrong answers, but we only showed four, and it was a true false or a multiple choice with a none of the above, not this. So being able to capture all that context and store that, and then correctly tease it out, and then build a model against it, figuring out what that that included and how to put all the pieces of data together. That was interesting. I think we, we have a you know, like model 
in the tool called a quinstance, which is okay. a quiz instance. Because okay. we, we had, okay, we've got to generate a quiz and it might have teacher preferences at one given moment. But then within that quiz, within that context, we need to have an individualized version for each student that they, they experience at that moment in time. It's like, well, how, how do we refer to that? It's, it's a quiz, but it's, well, that's also a quiz. So it's quinstance became our, 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 our term and it's, it's been great. But we have a lot of those little, little things that we had to kind of figure out on the way that like, ooh, we have to structure this and store this in a unique way that I think gives us, you know, gives us an advantage in the market that I don't think other people have really thought about data for education this way yet. And so for folks that are like, how did you approach that problem? Did you just stumble upon the answer or did you just try out everything that was out there and see what worked and like, what did you end up doing? These are, uh, these are sore subjects. Be careful here. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Oh, man. Uh, flashbacks. I actually, when, I, when we first started to, trying to build this, I was just like a, you know, a budding, budding web developer. I actually built the whole tool without a lot of the neural nets. I hadn't quite gotten there yet. But I built my own kind of parsing engine and NLP engine out of PHP. Because it was the only language I knew. Right. So I had a lot of lessons learned. Right. So (laughs) it was a terrible, terrible idea with like, I think on the the front end was like a Drupal 6. It was, right, right. Exactly. I'm proud of these moments. But like, it was a, They were learning experience. But exactly. And like, I got 10 times better as a developer and it like, it jumpstarted, I think, a lot of my career just being, having to suffer through that. So having a really good problem to chew on for a long time. And then eventually I said, okay, well, no, Python is better for this. There's Java libraries that I can start to incorporate. I need to stand up microservices architectures. Right now we have, I think, 14 different microservices, each running even different parts of the models, all talking to each other, leveraging the same data set, caching some parts here and there. So, I mean, but I had to learn that kind of all on my own, starting with that poor, poor Drupal set. But yeah, that's, that's is, is trial and error. Could have been WordPress. It, it, uh, it, it, it almost was. <laughs> I thought it was advanced when I found Laravel. I was like, ooh, man, it's not Drupal. Nice. <laughs> but nice. yeah. In, in terms of the data store, did you like, is it like some kind of document oriented MongoDB type of thing or like a Cassandra or what direction so did you go? We there? actually, because we didn't really know what we were doing, yeah. and I think that's actually a great use case for Mongo is that it's, it's a kind of a turnkey solution and you can kind of drop in what, whatever you want and then there are a lot of kind of lightweight ORMs on top of it. Yeah. So you can change the model and it doesn't break everything. You just have to go back and kind of clean some stuff later. So we've been doing Mongo for probably the last year as we kind of moved to a more production level product. But we've now hit the wall. We're saying, okay, the type, you know, the model types have kind of settled. We kind of know what our structure is. We know what it needs to be. We've thought it out. We've been in the wild and seen what happened. So now we're actually moving to kind of a combination of things, probably some kind of Mongo or other, you know, NoSQL database for a lot of the document structure. And then probably Cassandra for a lot of the, like the interactions, the the in the moment interactions, because it's ability to scale kind of linearly where everyone else kind of stops at a certain, <laughs> a certain, certain point. So yeah, so we were, re- I'm, I'm really excited to move to Cassandra, but Cassandra, you know, also has some, you know, issues around search. You gotta, you gotta figure out how to get search done. So there's a lot of other, you know, different ways looking at, you know, Postgres for other certain features because you can okay. index and search there. So it's, we're actually moving to a more complex model, but again, each database has to fit a different part of the system. And right. we now know how that system really needs to like be set up to, to, you know, run at light speed. Okay. You know, given that you're doing kind of the interactive updating and all that kind of stuff, I'm assuming that's not still PHP. Is that like Spark <laughs> or? It is almost like there's a little bit of Python on the back end, some Java libraries that I haven't like written, but kind of leveraging some open source stuff. But primarily the entire stack is written in JavaScript, leveraging Amazon Lambda. 
and then uh-huh. React as the front end. So we have made this is a if you know the heavens opened up and and God said yes, please like go use this product, and we had massive scale that we are set up to you know I assume handle it. Scale breaks everything, but we knew that there was going to be so much compute that we wanted to make sure we could kind of turn every little lever. So all those microservices are most of them are, are speaking you know lambda to each other, and it also means that. The models are lightweight enough in some respects that we can offload some of that model computation to the browser. So we have this JavaScript written neural nets. So I can actually load some of the early computation onto the computer for the teacher or the user or the phone and then do the computation then just pass back the results and kind of offload a good 20 to 30% of our load back onto the user. So we're not doing it now, but we are set up to do that eventually. Oh, wow. And are you using any particular open source library to do the, the front end inference? Um, or did you write that yourself? No, that's a combination of Synaptic. I think Synaptic.js was the one we're okay. using right now. And that, that is, there have been many variations. I think the first one we used was called Brain. There's a lot of JavaScript libraries that, that are just coming out where they said, I want to write JavaScript and I want to do neural nets. And they can do some pretty cool things on the browser. Not necessarily the big scale stuff that we want to do on some of our calculations, but a lot of the smaller, like within a document, within a document, kind of known document space, we can do that on the browser side. And we, we are you know, going to shift to that model later. Hmm. Interesting. And so walk me through, I'm trying to, to think through the way I've envisioned your process. You get these documents, you're doing a bunch of what I think of as backend processing to come up with questions and answers and normalize them and all that kind of stuff. What would you want to do on the front end that would require, you know, running the inference locally or would take advantage of that if not require? So the first thing you do kind of as a user is you drop in a URL. Eventually it'll be a search term or URL, but right now we're focused on kind of new content capture. So you drop in a URL and then immediately we go scrape that content from that URL and then start parsing it. And a lot of that parsing work, right now we're handling the back end, but it can be handled by the browser. Ah, got it. Right? So that is actually a big portion of the compute because it's a lot of parsing. But if, if that can be off, offloaded instead of 10 people doing it all on, on, on one of our machines or a series of Lambda functions, but pushing that to the browser, because that's kind of, it's not proprietary stuff, it's not crazy, right. you know, complicated, but it just needs to get done. Someone needs to pull out, you know, named entities, someone needs to, you know, to break, do sentence barrier detection. So all that stuff can be handled, and we just want the results, and then, then we get to kind of the, the nitty-gritty of the data on the back end. It strikes me that if a lot of folks aren't doing that now, that's going to be kind of a popular way to do cooperative compute. It's almost right. like you know, having your users you know, mine Bitcoin for you, but more legitimately. Right. I haven't, <laughs> I, the, only, the only other industry that I know is really doing that is, is Bitcoin and not you know, like, oh, like my, my advertising window is mining Bitcoin for someone in the Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but I was like, okay, well, how, like, I, when I read that, I was like, that's a really cool architecture. And like, we'd already been kind of thinking about this as like, oh, so like someone's proving that this is doable. So it was, it was kind of a, a check in the box of, yes, this is maybe where architecture should go. Interesting. It strikes me that that could be a startup in and of itself. Right. Solidifying (laughs) that architecture, because there's all kinds of problems that you could run into of like, you know, the process is stealing all the compute and, Mm -hmm. you know, usability issues and stuff like that. Yeah. If we figure that out, then we can shift to, uh, maybe that'll be our second business once we sell this one. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You know, given all that, all that technology, like there's, Tons of folks, particularly here in New York City, right, doing ed tech. What makes you different? So we've been, you know, we've been doing this project for a long time. So we've been watching the ed tech market when the booms and busts. I think we're on the, the third boom right now that we've been paying attention <laughs> to. And we keep seeing investors getting burned, and mostly because they keep investing kind of this 
what seems like a really cool new thing, but in reality, it falls into kind of like two standard business models. One we call kind of the warehouse model, which is just collect as much information as possible and then make it searchable. But if you look at some of the products out there, you find that those, the search algorithms are, are poor at best. They're not searching on like real performance data, just keywords. So you end up getting like a big warehouse and you'll search for the War of 1812, for example, you get 342 results. I'm not speaking about any product particularly. <laughs> <laughs> and all of them are ranked 3.9 or four stars out of four stars. So as a teacher, like I tried to use that. I was like, this, this is useless for me. Great, so I'm, am I gonna open 342 PDFs and then read them and say, oh, I think this one will work? And even if I learned, like, oh, this one actually was effective, I have no way to like really transfer that knowledge back in and share that with my community. So that was like one thing, okay, we can solve that part. And the other business model is we call kind of the walled garden model, which is more like the you know, 1920s newspaper business model, right? Whereas you know, like ed tech companies are essentially taking investor money, paying authors to write content, and then putting it behind a paywall, just like a newspaper, traditional media. And they're saying, oh, no, no, you can't read it, or but like I promise you it's the best. Publisher. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I was going to say it. <laughs> so you have, you have this, this, this model to, where, where the kind of the incentives are misaligned, where it's that it's not in their interest to share what pieces of content they like and don't like, because you kind of get like, a, oh, you buy this whole suite of stuff. So yeah, they want to improve it, but they're not necessarily helping the teacher do that and really enlisting the teacher's help being honest about what is and is not working. And if, you know, if I ask you know, someone at the New York Times if I think their, their company or the newspaper is better than the Washington Post, I know who they're gonna say, right? I, I know what that answer is. So getting real data and performance out of, of kind of this traditional model is just hard. So you've got this kind of high quality, you know, hard to produce, expensive to produce new content model, wall garden, and you got warehouse, which is you know, high quantity and very low quality. And the more, you know, more stuff you get, the worse the user experience gets. So we said, can we tie quality and quantity together? Can we make it kind of a positive feedback loop? And that's really where the AI and the machine learning, you know, kind of cuts in is that we are capturing at scale enough information to kind of keep floating the best stuff up to the, up to the top, but searching for, through it and capturing it in a way that's not just traditional search. That means we can kind of cut through the top and get quantity and quality at scale. Have you found that a better way to rank and rank the way you present content is by kind of bubbling up what you've seen with the interactions as opposed to asking for an explicit star rating or things like that? Is that the direction you're going with this? What I would say is that we know that star rankings are not working. <laughs> so it's been tried. We are capturing that data, but instead of just having a, a, someone vote on like, oh, like I like this piece of content. Instead, we, we can capture more interesting data about like, I've got this piece of content and there's a hundred questions in it and I've seen tons of people who have strong opinions about the top 20. So it's it kind of the, the ranking and sorting algorithm is a bit more kind of off of the Reddit idea of how do you have these kind of layered nested pieces of, of information and how do you float all of that in some kind of you know recursive loop of like, oh, now, now I know that this piece of content is better than this one and I'm not just using the you know, upvotes and downvotes on those top level pieces, but everything inside. And that's really what's enabled us to kind of take the next level in terms of ranking. And then you combine that with performance data. And now you've got something that, you know, no one else is doing. Right, right. Well, that's a very cool story. What's next? <laughs> so if, if you take what we're doing right now and you really tease out that there's teachers using the system, what we can do is we can then take the data that the teachers and students have produced and bring that to institutions themselves and say, here's a, a view of your school that you've never seen before. 
one that would benefit you in terms of, of looking at how your students are actually learning as opposed to just the output grades? Like we're, we're looking at, are the students digging deeper into the content? Are they actually mastering something as opposed to did they just memorize it and move on? So looking at the next phase is, is using aggregated data of students and teachers at the school level, at the district level, the local government level, that type of thing. If you remember, if you, you, we were talking about earlier about the being able to come normalize and standardize questions against questions, answers against answers. Well, there's nothing preventing us from using very similar models to rank students against students. And not just students against their classmates or against themselves, but against every other student who's ever touched the system. So what I think is really unique about the way that we're doing this is that even if students see different pieces of content and take different quizzes, we can you know, compare them and say, okay, which student actually learned more or is doing better? And if you look at kind of the way we are standardizing student for results today, kind of standardized tests, it's right. shove a student in a room on a Saturday and you put 300 questions in front of them and pray. And, that, that, you know, and you hope you get good, good data. But with Mount Cleverest, though, instead of that 300 questions, you can get 30,000 know, data points per student per year over the course of a year. And you can finally get to those, as Bernie alluded to, the second order metrics of success that are kind of the, the holy grails of education policy of questions like, did the student become more curious? About what did they become more curious? Did the student get, you know, did they learn how to learn over time? And figuring out kind of where and what was, you know, what they most successful at. That's the stuff that a lot of kind of the typical standardized test models can't get to. So we know that at scale, that's where we think kind of a lot of this data will be valuable, is that we can actually provide real, you know, real standardized testing data to schools without them having to actually do any standardized testing. It's just part of the product. Awesome. Well, James and Bernie, it was great getting to learn a little bit about Mount Cleverest and kind of explore how you pulled it all together. Fascinating story. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Bernie, James, Mount Cleverest, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 63. To follow along with the NYU Future Labs AI Summit series, which will be piping to your favorite podcatcher all week, visit twimlai slash nexus labs too. Of course, you can send along your feedback or questions via Twitter to at twimlai or at Sam Charrington or leave a comment right on the show notes page. Thanks again to NYU Future Labs for their sponsorship of the show and the series. And of course, thank you once again for listening and catch you next time.